Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Recorded live. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to this edition of the Women of the Revolution. My name is Susan Bonner. I'm here with Deb, and I've had a horrific week because the weather is just horrific. How's your week been? Oh, it's been very busy, but it, it hasn't been near what you, you've had. With, I mean, we've had a, a bit of rain here, and apparently that's what it does in you know Washington from September until June, so that's fine. But uh, no, I, it's uh, it, it's going well. The kids are doing good. It is getting big, having fun. Yeah, I had a foot of snow. Yeah. <laughs> An entire foot of snow, 12 inches. 12 no. inches of snow. No. Oh, yeah. weather. And weather's important. <sighs> okay, well, this is an educational endeavor. We've been doing it for three and a half years. We highlight women of the revolution. And we actually were running out of loyalist women. And lo and behold, as I said last show, God said, oh, no, no, you're going to continue. And we have found more loyalist women. Yay. And more patriot women. Yay. (laughs) So tonight we are going to go to the Northern Theater. We've been here before a couple of times, but Boston in particular. And this little girl I found is incredible, and, and we do have a lot of information on her, which is incredible as well, because as we say, a lot of times we don't have that much on the women themselves, just their names, where they lived, what was, and then we, what we do is highlight what was going on during the revolution around them. But we have a treat tonight. We actually have some information on this woman. Now, it's a little girl. Her name is Dorothy Gamsey, and she was part of the American Revolution for a short time, but she was part of the significant start of the revolution, so that makes it even better. So I am going to start with Brush. It's a site called Brush with Mystery, and as always, we are going to highlight everything that is around these women. Now, excuse me, we're going to start from about the voyage because she and her family came over um, from England just a few years before the start of the revolution. So they weren't there for the whole thing, and they're loyalists, of course, um, because they didn't go through what the colonists went through. By the time they got there, it had already heated up because um, I think it started heating up in... 1763? No, it was more, um, well, 64 was the first act that 
uh, and of course you have to remember that King George the Third has taken the throne in I believe it was sixty three and sixty two or sixty three and he he decided unlike his father George the Second that he was going to be a much more hands on monarch and he turned his attention to the uh, colonies in America because of the French and Indian War, and his treasury was basically, you know, empty uh, in the 60s when he took the throne. And he decided he was going to build it up um, by taxing the, having Parliament tax the colonists, which they started to do. Well, they got the, the, uh, the, the Death Act or the Sugar Act came first. Anyway, uh, they got the, the colonists raised such a fuss that they withdrew it. But then they did other acts, and and then you know the people in Boston um, got a little miffed, and that started you know uh, things started heating up with uh, uh, some of the patriot leaders in Boston, like Sam Adams, and he started the Sons of Liberty, and that brought about uh, more tension. And then the British, no, 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 no. It was also the fact that the the religious aspect was that the ministers were, or the bishops, um, were going to be coming from, they were, well, oh gosh, that's too complicated. But anyways, you can look up the, the problem with the the bishops um, and the uh, the ministers being paid uh, to come over and be there, and then and um, and then the uh, let's see. Well, now we're up to about sixty eight, and then the intolerable act came about, and that really upset uh, Sam Adams and a, a lot of other people. And uh, then King George sent over the British Army, more British Army troops, and had them quartered in Boston. And that was the end of any kind of reconciliation, which led to Lexington and Concord, which is about where we're right before Lexington and Concord. Um, it, it's basically where her... After the after they came over, then her her story continued. Right, and this is Dead's Neck of the Woods. She was born and raised in Massachusetts, so she's our little uh, expert here, and I will be referring to her quite frequently, as I, as I always do. So, the voyage of Dorothea Gramsci. George, the King of England, the fourth of that name, was born August 12, 1765. And so was I. A very now this is this is all of the accounts from Dorothea is in her where her great grandmother and her great grand granddaughters found her great grandmother's account from what she remembers being told by Dorothea. So this is supposedly Dorothea in her own words. A very untoward prognostic it must have been for all the rejoicing on that day made and provided always theme of me fate. Not that any connection or affinity existed. On the contrary, fate could not have exhibited a wider contrast. 
than that which existed between my young prince and my absurd self. Yet somehow I was always a little proud of the circumstance for having loved my king from my earliest years and always taught to reverence the crown. The birthday festival seemed partially to honor me. I had but dim and dreamy recollection of Newcastle upon time, my birthplace, or of our little company leaving our old home. But I remember my mother's tears and how she and my aunt, my father and uncle, made signals to those left on shore as the tall ships moved slowly from the dock. Now, I'm going to be stopping frequently because we have done, we have highlighted many loyalists, but this is truly a different perspective because we never, okay, because the loyalists that we highlighted had been colonists or had been descendants of colonists for decades, right? Yeah, yeah. And, and what was interesting about their coming over was there were quite a few people at that time left England because the situation, um, if you read up on what was going on in the, the 18th century in England, it wasn't very good for the, the people unless you were, um, you know, in the aristocracy. Uh, the the Irish were having a terrible time. Um, the, the the Scots were, uh, you know, they they were. Let's see, 1742, the Jacobite thing was going on uh, with with Bonnie Prince Charlie when they wanted him to take the throne. Uh, there was a lot of strife, and uh, the economy wasn't very good. And and if you lived in a city. The conditions were horrendous. Um, you know, they used coal for uh, for heat, which led to, I mean, you know, just think back of L.A. in the, the 60s before they cleaned up the air. I mean, it, it was just disastrous. And, of course, there was no sewage, you know, sewage treatment plant, you know, and um, so the... the uh, the situation, uh, societal, economic, um, you know, just it, it was just really pretty horrendous in the 18th century. Well, that makes sense because if you think about it, to leave and go all across the sea, which you're never going to know if you're going to make it or not, especially with young children, and um, you already know that the colony, as far as you're concerned, is a wild place, and still, no matter what, you want to go there, even though you don't know what you're going to find. And like, again, we, this is a new perspective of loyalists that we're highlighting here tonight because all the loyalists were already over there here. It was, it was more civilized than what the people in England had thought. But still, what you're saying, describing, it had to be so bad, so bad that they were willing to do this, right? Yeah. for You know, a lot of them came over um, because they were, of course, uh, the Anglican Church was still a, a problem. I mean, you had to be an Anglican or you were persecuted and prosecuted, both. Um, then there was the economic situation, uh, and a lot of people looked to the American colonies as a chance to better their, their uh, economic situation. And, and yes, to be able to 
to have, you know, have their own business or have their own land see, that they couldn't do in England. Yeah, that's what most of these uh, illegal aliens do think too. But unfortunately, ladies and gentlemen, unlike the colonists back in the day, they're destroying the place that they think they're going to make better. Okay, so, and, this, and she gets into this as well, which I thought was fascinating. I was too young to understand the immigration fever, then raging, or why we must leave our snug homes when everybody seems so sorry. But I suppose the fever was like what you call the Western fever. It's symptoms being discontent with the present and irrepressible desire to be somewhere else, to become richer and, of course, happier in some far-off land. I remember the long, tiresome voyage and the petting of the merry sailors. For a little miss of seven years old is almost always sure to become a favorite of the hardy sons of Neptune. I love that, the hardy sons of Neptune. (laughs) My little brothers, I had two and a baby sister. So, again, they're traveling with young children and babies across this vast ocean. It's just amazing to me. Um, We're uneasy and fretful and quite too small to be trusted out of our mother's care and kept my aunt, who had no children, almost as busy as they did our mother. I think I must have been a fearless and impulsive child, for I romped at will on the deck, scrambled into all sorts of places where I should not have gone, incurring reproof from my father, frightening my mother and aunt, and delighting the old skipper, who, meeting me in the gangway or elsewhere out of bounds, often tossed me above his head, large as I was, or into the arms of the nearest sailor, laughing and squabbling with unabounded glee. And that I was a tomboy. So, yeah, that was me too. (laughs) Oh, I would have been all over the ship. (laughs) (laughs) I know. I was fearless back then. I really was. I'm not like that anymore. Um, But I live a really harder life right now. But, yeah, I was fearless. I didn't didn't care. And I was the eldest, just like she is. She's the eldest. And, um, I drove my mother crazy. My dad, he, he liked it. <laughs> I yeah. drove my mom insane. But of all the friends I recollect on board, I remember the most distinctly. The old weather-beaten, gray-bearded boat twain, John McNear. Seated on a coil of ropes, he would hold me for hours, swinging on his knee, my eyes fixed on his, listening to tales of mermaid and sea monsters, pearl islands and coral caves. Entranced by his descriptions of the wonderful beauty of the homes of the water sprites, fully believing that just now we should see a mermaid with her mirror, or maybe the phantom ship of the Flying Dutchman. There must have been poetry as well as superstition in the garrulous old tar, for his weird tales haunt my memory still, and, he, and his fancied presence cheers me in my blindness. Now, she must have been a really, really cute girl, you know, like Shirley Temple. <laughs> That's what, you know, that's exactly what I thought. <laughs> In fact, if they ever did a movie of her, too bad, you know, that they didn't when Shirley Temple was a little one because she would have been perfect. Yes, she would have. She really would have. We Great minds think alike, Deb. My aunt commenced my education about this time, and the bribe used to induce me to exert myself to remember the letters of the alphabet was the ability to read all about the wonders McNair had told me of. We had stormy weather, too. When I was ordered to keep below, 
although I begged hard to be allowed to remain on deck, that I might watch the huge seas, as the sailors called them, rising and rolling almost over us, imagining that by some special good luck I should get a peep at a mermaid's bower when the vessel slid into the trough of the sea. Now, I don't know if you watched, I have to bring this up, I don't know if you watched the show The Last Ship. No, I haven't. Okay. Well, anyway, the show The Last Ship, it's about our Navy and it's about the end of the world. And yesterday, the, the and I'm sorry if I'm a spoiler alert, but we DVR'd it, so I'm, I'm pretty sure everyone saw it. Um, yesterday, they were showing, they, they were escaping these other ships that were trying to, to get them. And a huge storm was coming at them. So the, what they decided to do is go between the two other ships, and I'm, I'm doing this because she's in a storm right now. Go between the two ships, like, like playing chicken, like they're going to ram them, but they didn't. And they knew that they wouldn't shoot at them because they had something that these ships desired. So they went through them, and then they went through the storm. And, Deb, they showed so spectacularly the ship cutting right through the waves. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, my God, a ship can do that? And Brian's like, Brian was a clamor, my husband, and he was on one of these major um, fishing ships. But his captain fell asleep in a storm, and they almost capsized because they weren't. That's what he said to me. He said, if they go straight through the storm, then you're, you're cutting through the waves. But if you go, if you, it gets anywhere sidewards, that's when the waves come. The waves could even come over the bow of the ship, and they showed that. But because it was going straight and the, the pointy part of the ship was going through the waves, it was incredible. Yeah, yeah. It really was. I mean, the fact that, and they didn't have the technology that we have now. You know, in all these years, the fact that all these ships have been able to do this, and they really showed it. I mean, it got battered. I was like, oh, my freaking God, you're kidding me. I mean, even with these yeah. sailors, as, as, you know, they're used to this and the, how well they were trained. I mean, we are up against Mother Nature. You can all bet to freaking off, you know. <laughs> but, yeah, and, and when I read this, and then last night I was watching it, I'm going, oh, man, that's what, the, that's what these ships were doing. But they had sails. See, we have the, the power. And the sails, like, they probably were torn to shreds, right, back in those days? Well, yes. Um, gosh, when, when uh, the pilgrims were coming over, um, you know, the, the ones that came to uh, Plymouth Rock, the storm, one of the storms that they went through, it was so fierce that it cracked the main sail mast. And they had to um, put it back together with with bands of iron. So yeah, I mean it, it can it can uh, it, it just break apart a ship. Yeah, it was just so amazing watching that footage and then thinking about her and her brothers and sisters and little babies. <coughs> Excuse me, ladies and gentlemen, I got a bug in my throat. I think. <clears> throat> Okay, so she wanted to be out on deck. But we somehow dropped into Boston Harbor without any such sights. Though I dare say, if I could remember them, we saw things as really wonderful as any good old boatswain described in his land of yarns. <laughs> it isn't going away. 
Um, why don't we, while I compose myself, get into the Boston um, siege? Okay. And then I'll come back to this. All right. Okay. Now there's a couple of articles. This one's really good, though, from the Journal of the American Revolution. God, I love this this site. Um, and it's uh, if I can get my page to go the way I want it to instead of the other way. It's an article: Anxiety and Distress, Civilians Inside the Siege Siege of Boston by Alexander Kane. It, it begins, over the years, historians have written countless works on the military and political aspects of the Siege of Boston. Unfortunately, little attention has been given to the impact of the siege upon the residents of the city. As British military and political authorities attempted to recover from the disaster of April 19, 1775, which was um, conquered in Lexington, the residents of Boston found themselves trapped inside a town that was on the verge of social and economic collapse. Okay. On the evening of April 18th, many of the residents knew a military operation was in motion and thus got little sleep. I did not get to bed this, e this night until after 12 o'clock nor to sleep long after that, and then my sleep was much broken as it had been for many nights before. And this was uh, um, an account from, oh dear, uh, Sarah Winslow Deming's journal, which we will get, be getting into eventually in a couple of shows. We'll definitely be doing her. Um, let's see, now I have to get back to my place. It's raining here and cloudy, so the internet isn't all that good, and it seems a little slow, but... I shall prevail. Many Bostonians were oblivious of plans to seize and destroy supplies located in Concord, Massachusetts. Instead, mostly the British objective was the arrest of Samuel Adams and John Hancock. And as Sarah Winslow Deming recalled, the main was to take possession of the bodies of Mr. Adams and Hancock, whom they and we knew where we were lodged. We had no doubt of the truth of all this. Shortly after dawn, Word of the fighting at Lexington reached Boston residents. Predictably, fear set into the populace. Early on Wednesday, the fatal 19th April, before I had quitted my chamber and one after another came running up to me to tell me that the King's troops had fired upon and killed eight of our neighbors at Lexington on their way to Concord. All the intelligence of this day was dreadful, almost every continent expressing anxiety and distress. As the day progressed, Boston broke into a state of panic. Many residents wandered about aimlessly, unsure of what the future held. In a letter to his son, the Reverend Andrew Elliott stated, I know not what to do, not where to go. Poor Boston, may God sanctify our distresses, which are greater than you can conceive. Such a Sabbath of melancholy and darkness I never knew. Every face gathered in paleness, all hurry and confusion, one going this way and another that. Others not knowing where to go, what to do with our poor maid, I cannot tell. In short, after the melancholy exercises of the day, I am a unable to write anything with propriety or connection, everything distressing. Over the next few days, as the American army surrounded the town and settled into a siege, scores of Bostonians discovered they were prohibited from fleeing the town. General Thomas Gage was fearful that if the residents were permitted to leave, they would provide material assistance to the American Army. 
As a result, he issued orders barring residents from leaving Boston. And uh, according to merchant John Rowe, Boston's economy immediately collapsed. Businesses stopped operating and fresh provisions for markets stopped coming into town. Boston is in the most distressed condition, he writes. Residents gathered at a town meeting on April 22nd to address their declining situation. A resolution was drafted to General Gage and highlighted the level of desperation they felt with the town being shut off to the outside world. Inhabitants cannot be supplied with provisions, uh, fuel, and other necessaries of life, by which means the sick and all invalids must suffer greatly and immediately, and the inhabitants in general be distressed, especially such which is by much the greatest party as have not had the means of laying in a stock of provisions, but depend for daily supplies from the country for the daily support, and may be in danger of perishing unless the communication be open. <laughs> Excuse me. Representatives from the town also voted to approach General Gates to secure his permission for Americans to evacuate Boston. After a tense meeting, the general ultimately agreed to let the residents vacate to the countryside on the condition they surrender their weapons. Wow. Ah. Reluctantly, the Bostonians agreed. A minister recalled the state of the civilian populace on the eve of the evacuation. I'm not impelled by the unhappy situation of this town. All communication with the country is cut off, and we wholly, we wholly deprived of the necessaries of life in the principal mart of America is become a poor garrison town. Almost all are leaving their pleasant habitations and going they know not whither. The most are obliged to leave the furniture and effects of every kind. Now I am by cruel necessity turned out of my house and must leave my books and all I possess, perhaps to be destroyed by a licentious soldiery. My beloved congregation dispersed, my dear wife retreating to a distant part of the country, my children wandering not knowing whither to go, perhaps left to perish for want, myself soon to leave this devoted capital, happy if I could find some obscure quarter which will afford me a fair subsidence. I wish to God the authors of our misery could be witnesses of it. They must have hearts harder than an adamant if they did not relent in pity us. Those who chose to flee made their way to Boston Neck, the sole land route out of the town. At least four checkpoints along the Neck were set up by the British Army. Residents were searched for weapons and carriages and chases were prohibited from leaving the city. Some residents pleaded with family and friends not to leave the safety of Boston. Most pleas were rebuffed, as many believed once British reinforcements arrived, the town would become a killing field. This belief was only strengthened as rumors of atrocities being committed by soldiers inside Boston quickly spread. Once again, panic set in and residents pressed harder to get out of the city of destruction. At the height of confusion, British officials closed Boston Neck and the inhabitants were ordered back into town. Okay, right. hold on right there. Okay. Keep your place. Now, right. this was in 1775. And when I was reading Dorothea's account, they landed, where was that? Um, I don't think they said, I don't think they said what year they landed. Well, she was seven. And she was right. born in 65. 65. So it was 72. Okay, so 72, and this is 70, 75. Yeah. So that's only three years after they arrive here that this is happening. 
And when they got there, they didn't understand, they didn't know anything about, you know, the, the acts that had been committed on the, the colonists. They didn't, weren't involved in any of that. They, they didn't have um, any way of knowing what Britain was doing to the colonists. Isn't that true? Well, yeah, they, I, I'm sure that they, you know, well, it depends um, where they were living. In Newcastle is where they came from. I'm sure they, they heard uh, some news of the American colonies, but they were dealing with their own situation over there. Um, yeah, that was far away. And, right. And, of course, it was, uh, you know, the, the Brits were so good at, at – uh, Going, oh, they're just rabble rousers. You know, we'll we'll take care of them. And and King George was definitely going to take care of them. I mean, he was very plain on that. So you know, they didn't think too much about it. It was just, uh, you know, some stories that they were probably hearing. Okay, so how much they, going they back to Dorothea, and she's they, they somehow dropped into Boston Harbor without any such sights. Though I dare say, if I could remember them, we saw things as really wonderful as any good old boatswain described in his land of yarn. How I wondered at the sadness of my mother and aunt while gazing at the glitter of the foliage presented by an American autumn, the strange coast, the bustling harbor, and the clean new city of Boston. No coal boat, coal dust, or smoke presented a familiar scene, but a new world in every aspect. And though all was pleasing, was pleasing, neat, and comfortable, they gave a tear to Newcastle, to the memory of dear old England and the friends forsaken forever. That, to me, is a description of our beautiful America, you know? Yeah. Okay, so George Nutting, my uncle, was an English gentleman of the old school, rich, generous, and childless. My father was but a well-to-do mechanic, with four children in a strange land. Could you explain what a mechanic is, Deb? Well, that's a craftsperson. That's the word that they use um, for people who worked with their hands, basically, you know, artisans. Like Paul Revere was known as a mechanic. Um, anybody who created something uh, of the, the craft skills, um, you know, uh, they... It, Versus a merchant who sold what the mechanics made. You know what I'm saying? It's uh, yeah, yeah. It, it's the artisans and the craft craftsmen. Okay. Yet, though so differently situated, the two sisters, my aunt and mother, were tenderly attached to each other. And I now learned that for the present, I was to remain with my aunt. My uncle took a beautiful house in one of the pleasantest streets in Boston. My father went into business in Lynn, a town not far off. I never visited the place but once or twice and recollected very little about it. For the country, my uncle said, had gone mad and we had better stay at home. In fact, it was on the eve of revolution and we were visited by noble-looking gentlemen without number who talked all dinner time of the rebellious Whigs and what the parliament had done and would do. To be sure, they toasted King George and the British nation, the king's troops and English ladies, and many a deep bottle of good old wine. But my uncle was a true and loyal subject and hated the rebels as much as he loved his own government. So he pledged his countrymen again and again till the talk became a roar, and my aunt sent her maid to 
put me off to bed in a far-off chamber out of the hearing of the din. So um, that's why I wanted uh, Deb to get into the Boston, um, the siege of Boston, because this is right around that's all starting to happen. So now we're going to continue with the siege of Boston because they've already decided which side they're going to be on, and this is what the British did to the colonists. So continue where you are. Okay. So on April 27, 1775, General Gage again reversed himself and gave permission for the remaining American residents to leave Boston. Surprisingly, however, British authorities undermined Gage and made it difficult, if not impossible, for Bostonians to leave. Passes were now required to cross over Boston Neck, and their number was limited. Nearly half the inhabitants had left the town already, and another quarter, at least, had been waiting for a week past with earnest expectation of getting passes, which had been dealt out very sparingly of late, not above two or three procured of a day, and those with the greatest difficulty. It is a fortnight uh, It is a fortnight yesterday since the communication between the town and country was stopped. Of consequence, our eyes have not been blessed with either vegetables or fresh provisions, how long we shall continue in this wretched state. On May 5th, a large number of passes were issued and many residents quickly left via Boston Neck. You'll see parents that are lucky enough to procure papers with bundles in one hand and a string of children in the other, wandering out of the town only with... Uh, oh, I just blinked and lost my place. I'm sorry. Um, okay. Wandering out of town with only a sufferance of one day's permission, not knowing whether they'll go. The following day, General Gage inexplicably, inexplicably revoked all outstanding passes again, declared no more were to be issued, and those who wished to leave were prohibited from doing so. By the end of May, Boston more closely resembled a post-apocalyptic world than a bustling seaport community. While many had abandoned the town, others barricaded themselves inside their homes and had private guards watching over their property. The Reverend Elliot accurately described the state of Boston on the eve of the Battle of Bunker Hill. I have remained in this town much against my inclination. Most of the ministers being gone, I have been prevailed with to officiate to those who are still left to carry. Much the greater parts of the inhabitants gone out of the town grass growing in the public walks and streets of this one populous and flourishing place, shops and warehouses shut up, business at an end, everyone in anxiety and distress. Fresh provisions were increasingly scarce and trapped occupants were often forced to survive on food of questionable quality. It's hard to stay cooped up here and feed upon salt provisions. We have now and then a carcass offered for sale in the market, which formerly we would not have picked up in the street, but bad as it is, it readily sells. The combination of British troops, loyalist refugees, and Boston residents all occupying a small amount of space only exacerbated a very dangerous situation. Press gangs roamed the town looking for civilian men to force into manual labor. Inhabitants were arrested for merely being suspected of espionage or providing aid to the enemy. Many of the soldiers and camp followers abused the inhabitants, stole from them, and plundered their property, particularly that of residents who had left the city. 
John Andrews complains that the soldiery think they have a license to plunder everyone's house and store who leaves the town, of which they have given convincing proofs already. According to John Leach, Boston had devolved into a complicated scene of old curses, debauchery, and the most horrid blasphemy. I guess that would be blasphemy, committed by the provost marshal. His deputy and soldiers who were our guards, soldier prisoners, and sundry soldier women. Nor were, nor were loyalist refugees immune from the hardships of the siege. And he goes into Dorothy, Dorothy Agamsby was 10 years old when the war broke out. In a letter written years later to her granddaughter, Gamsby accurately described how tenuous the situation inside Boston had become by the eve of the Battle of the Bunker Hill, and we're going to get to that. Residents continued to hide in fear and were under constant stress. Most believed that the town would be invaded by the rebels and its inhabitants slaughtered at any moment. Uh, let's see, then there's this is what she was going to get into in a bit. And then as the siege progressed, conditions inside the town continued to decline. Some houses of worship were demolished for fuel or converted into riding stables. Disease and sickness began to spread inside Boston. As Timothy Newell noted, there were several thousand inhabitants in town who were suffering the watch of bread and every necessary of life. The end result was a general sense of despair throughout the surviving civilian population. Some of the common emotional descriptions by residents during the siege include such negative words as anxiety, distress, forsaken, and darkness. Some accounts even expressed what only could uh, be interpreted as hopelessness or borderline suicidal thoughts. It is impossible to describe the distress of this unfortunate town. I try to do what business I can, but, in, but am disappointed, and nothing but cruelty and ingratitude falls to my lot. A final humiliating blow to the occupants came on the eve of the British evacuation of Boston. British troops and loyalist refugees roamed the streets, plundering homes, warehouses, and businesses of the local populace. According to Merchant John Rowe, they stole many things and plundered my store. I remained all day in the store but could not hinder their destruction. They are, the making, they are making the utmost speed to get away and carrying everything they can away, taking all things they meet with, never asking who is owner or whose property, making havoc in every house and destruction of all kinds. By March 17, 1776, British soldiers were suspected of committing acts of arson in the northern part of town. Troops repeated, repeatedly threatened, robbed, and intimidated the inhabitants to the horror of many Bostonians. Even officers participated in the illegal activities. The army did not turn a totally blind eye to these crimes during the siege and in the two months following the evacuation. At least 27 military personnel, including two officers and three followers, were tried by General Force Marshal for crimes against inhabitants, primarily robbery and plunder. Others may have been tried by lesser courts, but in spite of efforts, crimes by the soldiery were widespread. Um, then it says, you know, it says, following the British and Loyalist evacuation of Boston, American troops entered the town and were joyfully greeted as liberty, liberators. Thus was this unhappy, distressed town relieved from a set of men whose unparalleled wickedness, profanity, debauchery, and cruelty is inexpressible. For the next several years, Loyalist and Patriot inhabitants of Boston petitioned the Continental Congress and the Massachusetts government for compensation for property lost or damaged as a result of the siege. 
some claims were paid, others were ignored and denied. In the weeks after the conclusion of the siege, American troops moved south to New York City. Never again in Boston's history were residents subjected to the horrors of a military siege or occupation. Which is now you can see why in the Constitution they have there will be no quartering of troops in people's homes. Which I think they violated in the Civil War. Yeah. Because I, uh, I think that's one of the things that happened with, uh, what's her name? Oh, the famous movie, the famous book about the Civil War. can't believe I can't, I can't remember it. Okay, but well, I want to discuss this a little bit. We've been doing um, a lot of um, cities and towns that were under siege in, in reporting on it. Um, this was by far the most horrific out of all of the uh, takeovers by Britain was in Boston. And you and I talked about it off air. The other, New York City, Philadelphia, Charlotte, Savannah, um, they all were allowed to leave. They needed to have permits, but they were allowed to come and go and bring food into the city or bring food to the outlying areas by the British. Boston was not, right? And that's the difference. Well, yeah. And, and the thing was is that it was a siege. It wasn't like an occupation where they came in and took over. This is because you have to remember, Boston was almost an island. Um, and, the, and there were two ways to get there. There's the neck, what they call the neck. And, and uh, the, the Boston neck was where the the American army set up blockades so that the British were, were stuck in Boston because, you know, they're basically surrounded by water. And uh, so the Americans had the land. They, had, they, were, they were at the head of the neck leading to Boston. And then there is the British ships were in the, in the harbor surrounding Boston. So the British were stuck in, in Boston, and, and the Americans were right at the neck. And, I mean, it was an impasse. And, and the, 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 the uh, Patriots did try. I mean, they, they sent in people to try to, to get, you know, to allow people to, to get out. They did try to negotiate. But, you know, General Gage was under, uh, he, you know, he wasn't the be-all, end-all. He had orders from above him. And, and then he was just getting fed up with the whole situation to begin with. Um, but, you know, the British ships were, were off the harbor now, and, and uh, but it was tough, and, you know, people would send up food from other colonies um, when the, the uh, I mean, Sam Adams and John Hancock got away. They didn't catch them, right? And they were uh, head of the Sons of Whitwell. They, Sam Adams was head of the Sons of Liberty, and John Hancock <laughs> was a smuggler <laughs> for a while there. And so they started, you know, writing letters 
to to all the colonies telling them the horrible abuses that was going on in Boston. Could you please help? And and then several of the colonies came through and they, you know, set up food by the wagon loads and everything to try to get into the people. But it was a desperate time and, and they again they're starved to death and they were and many died of sickness, you know, because nothing was being kept up. And and you suddenly have thousands of British soldiers, and it, Boston at that time wasn't uh, that big. Um, you have to remember that they filled in 100 or 1,000 acres. Uh, Southside Chicago or Chicago Southside Bo- or South Boston was underwater at the time. What became South Boston was underwater because they, it was the harbor, and. Uh, um, Let's see the other parts of anyways, so it was it was very different then, and if you look at a map, you can see you know a map from that that time you can see how uh how thin the neck was that led into Boston, so to give you a little more contextual uh perspective. Well, you were, you make a good point that they, I thought you weren't finished yet. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> That's okay. Um, you make a good point because the other cities were much bigger than Boston. So oh, yeah. that, that contributed as well. But I also, I think, I think that the British, even though they're not saying it, I think that the, even the British soldiers and the generals and the colonels saw what happened in Boston and said, all right, well, we're going to be occupying these people. Um, we're going to be taking other cities. We can't let this happen because it's impacting our own people, our loyalists, and our soldiers' health. So I think they had, that was a learning curve for them, you know, mm-hmm. even though no one brings it up, but it just makes sense to me. All right. So let's go back to Dorothea. So oh, now, there's just one huh? thing here I wanted to this is a, uh-huh. another um, another um, thing that uh, uh, another article here, the History of Massachusetts.org blog, and they talk about the Battle of Chelsea Creek, which is on May 14th in an attempt to deprive the British Army's foraging parties of much-needed resources and supplies. The Massachusetts Committee of Safety issued the following order: Resolved as their opinion that all livestock be taken back from Noddle. Island, Hog Island, Snake Island, and from that part of Chelsea near the seacoast, and be driven back, and that the execution of this business be committed to the Committee of Correspondence and Selectmen of the towns of Medford, Malden, Chelsea, and Lynn, and that they be supplied with such a number of men as they shall need from the regiment now at Medford. On May 27th and 28th, this order led to what became known as the Battle of Chelsea Creek, but is sometimes referred to as the Battle of Novel Island or the Battle of Hog Island. And it was basically um, a battle between the American troops and the British troops when the Americans removed all the livestock from the Harbor Islands and burned the hay the British needed to feed their animals. Um, and this is this is this gives you a little insight on what was happening, you know, while the people in Boston were having a really hard time. Um, the American troops, after spotting smoke from the burning hay, the British ship HMS Diana went to investigate but became stuck in the marsh during the early morning hours of May 28th. The American troops began to attack the ship, and after the British sailors were quickly rescued by another British ship, the American troops boarded the HMS Diana, stripped it of its valuables and munitions, and set it on fire. 
This was the first naval engagement of the Revolutionary War. The American troops later returned to Noddle Island on May 29th and 30th, removed the remaining livestock and attempted to make the island inhabitable for the British by burning down a mansion on the island owned by fellow patriot Henry Hall Williams, which left his family destitute. Um, they tried to, again, occupy the island, the, the, the American troops, but the British uh, bombarded them, the, the British fleet. Made it very impossible, so they they both both uh, after that they both decided to screw you know we're not going to deal with Nautilus Island and um, and it just stayed vacant throughout the siege. So there's battle, you know, there's things happening. They're, the Americans are trying to get the you know the keep the, the resources away from the British and. The British are trying to get rid of the patriots. And, <laughs> and these poor people are caught in the middle on, on an almost island, you know, watching the islands around them being bombarded and and ships gone on fire and cannons going off. Well, but that was the same thing in the, the Carolina, South Carolina, because those are all little islands, and we talked about that, too. Right. Same with Georgia has a bunch of little islands, and how these people had to flee from one island to another island to another island, right? We did all this. Yeah, it's a but they, At least they yeah. got to flee. These people, you're saying, had to stand there and watch it. Yeah, they couldn't leave. You know, they they were stuck there. And if you look at a map, you'll see that Noddle Island and Hog Island are not far from Boston. <laughs> I mean, they are not far. All right, am I ready to go back? Yes, you are. Thank you. Okay. I just thought that was interesting. Okay, so now we're going back to Dar- uh, Darcia, and she's living with her aunt and uncle, and they had servants, and... She's given over to this one maid, and this is her account of the maid. This maid was quite a character in her way and served many well for my governess, governor, governess. Though she could scarcely read her prayer book, but in those days, English ladies in America did not get the best kind of education for their daughters, and I was only a niece, you know. Besides, I had no fortune in prospect and must learn to take care of myself. So said the maid, and forthwith sent me hemming and stitching and employment. That's not true. That's not necessarily true. This is her um, situation. But as we have said over and over again, many of the ladies that we've highlighted, they were very, very well educated. They were very, very smart. And even the ones that weren't well educated, they were smart because of their wits. They had common sense. They had insight. Um, this is just her take because of, she's brand new to the colony. All these other women, these are already generations past. Um, I by no means liked, for besides being near or short-sighted, I did love a fairy tale and had learned and in, an, in an incredible short time to get at the meaning of some of the many Miss Abby kept hid, hid in her box. Always an English servant perceptible for her wardrobe. So her box was her wardrobe. Miss Abby read very ill herself. I could not very well learn to read correctly without consulting my aunt. And to do that would have been to have had the dear story of Cinderella or some equally interesting, 
interesting old time rag of a book smuggled across the water by maid prohibited. So she's bringing in books. And they don't really say, they only said that she was in Boston, but she, right now she's outside of Boston. Well, I think she's on one of those little islands, right, that are really close to Boston? No, let's see. Because they don't really say where she is. But she yeah, does go around. They don't say, let's see. Um, no, they don't. I've read this three times. But the way that she's describing it is that she, it, she can go probably across a bridge and they go right into Boston. Yeah. Yeah, she, well, she could be, like, um, well, wasn't her father, didn't they, didn't they go to, to Lynn? Yeah. 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 Okay. Um, so I blundered on by dint of spelling and guessing and teasing Abby for a rehearsal. Alternately coaxing and fighting in a childish fashion to my curiosity was, for the time, satisfied. She's a she's a whip. <laughs> Again, like you said, she just reminds me of a Sarah Shirley Temple. Um, okay, let's But there were subjects of interest discussed in the parlor and at dinner, which awoke wonder and fear. And but for Abby, I should have been none the wise for all the conversation I listened to. She had already secured a sweetheart who gave her a very clear, clever account of what was going on. And many a time when we should have kept to our rooms of an evening, we were trolling with Jack Smith through the busy street, nothing but lamplight, the hurry, and the bustle about us. So they're sneaking out. Aunt did not know it, but I did not like the constraint of the parlor and drawing room. So she, in her indulgent kindness, allowed me to stay in the housekeeper's room with Ab, Ab and Abby. And Abby, and Abby took me into, took me with her into the streets to look, as she said, but really to bribe me to silence on her conduct. Mm-hmm. Well, one night Jack came in in haste and appeared very much excited. Abby, said he, there is to be a show down by the Merchant's Wharf. Will you not go and see it? I can't now, really. I've got Dolly on my hand, and it's late and cold. Dolly is Dorothea. No, it's not cold, I exclaimed eagerly, and if it is late, we can sleep in in the morning. Let us go. Let me go. But if your aunt should find out, I should lose my place away off here in America. Let me go then, and I won't say a word. Not one, I insisted. But there will be wonderful things, little one, said Jack Smith, and then it's so cold. Maybe you will freeze or get frightened and scream, and that won't do. But one of the actors just told me where to go to get a good view of what is going on. But I am to be very whist, and so must you. Abby, won't she tell? Not she, and not I. We at once promised, and Abby added, if she tells, she will not get any more walks with us, will she now? The matter was soon settled, very, very soon settled for a child like I. I was too eager and too positive to be put off, and I would go, and go I did. Yeah, um, I'm stubborn too. So are you, right, Deb? Yeah. <laughs> oh, we're a really stubborn woman. We're, I was a stubborn little kid. I was a stubborn teenager. Oh, my gosh. 
you told me I could, couldn't do something, oh, I made damn sure I could do it, right? <laughs> yeah. Okay, so this is the big introduction to the Boston Tea Party. This little girl actually witnessed it, which I this find was a treasure. Um, I was so excited that we, we found this. But we have to say the historical rendition of the Tea Party before we get into her rendition, and Deb's going to be doing that. Okay, now this, oh, um, let me get it here. Oh, dear, 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 dear. Are you having internet problems? Yeah, no, I was just, uh, I have, of course, many windows and links. And um, so, anyways, this is from the Boston Tea Party Ship.com site. And it's, um, it's good. It tells a lot of things. But anyways, the Boston Tea Party was organized and carried out by a group of patriots led by Samuel Adams, known as the Sons of Liberty. The Sons of Liberty were made up of males from all walks of colonial society, and among its membership were artisans, craftsmen, business owners, tradesmen, apprentices, and common laborers who organized to defend their rights and to protest and undermine British rule. Famous Boston Patriots who were members of the Sons of Liberty included John Adams, John Hancock, James Otis, Josiah Quincy, Paul Revere, and Dr. Joseph Warren. Incited by the Sons of Liberty, over 5,000 people gathered at the Old South Meeting House, the largest public building in Boston at the time, and at 10 a.m. on December 16, 1773, to decide what was to be done about the tea and to plan at the Boston Tea Party. And the uh, cause of the Boston Tea Party, of course, um, uh, the, uh, the, uh, uh, let's see, the, the, the cause of it, I'm, I'm reading as I'm trying to talk, I can do that. Many factors, including taxation without representation, the 67 Townsend Revenue Act, and the 73, 1773 Tea Act. Um, and the Colonist League, Britain was unfairly taxing them to pay for expenses incurred during the French and War, as we discussed earlier. Uh, there were so many, there were so many taxes from, um, you know, in, in, in the smuggling of tea was undercutting the loop. Oh, see, here we go. Yeah, the smuggling operations violated the Navigation Act, which had been in place since the middle of the 17th century. The smuggling of tea was undercutting the lucrative British tea trade. And in response to the smuggling in 67, Parliament passed the Indemnity Act, which repealed the tax on tea and made British tea the same price as it does. Well, anyways, there's a lot of history on that, but it was basically politics and taxes that led to the Tea Party to sum it up in a very concise manner. Um, now, so I, the Tea Party was December 16, 1773. So this is the year before the siege of Boston. So that's why, you know, she's still there. And see, she, her parents went to Lynn. She stayed in Boston with her uncle, her, her gentleman uncle. So uh, let's see. And it goes on. I mean, this is a whole bunch of things. Um, it, it was on Griffin's War. Oh, hold on. Hold on one minute. we got to clarify because it's... It, I'm I'm even getting confused. She wasn't in Boston proper because 
she had to travel from where she was to go to Boston. Yeah, he I had a house in Boston, but then he had another house. He had two. Yeah. Like okay, you said, I'm most people do. To, I'm going to look up an old map of Boston. I, I, they, they're not really uh, clear on where they all were. It just bothers me. So I'm going to look <laughs> and see if I can clarify this in my own mind. All right, continue. Or I continue, don't I? Um, okay, now. This is what they said. The Beaver, Dartmouth, and Eleanor were moored in Griffin's Wharf in Boston. It is at this location where the December 16th destruction of the tea occurred. The original location of the Boston Tea Party no longer exists because of extensive landfills that destroyed the location. This was caused by the city of Boston's rapid expansion in the 19th century. Um, and uh, let's see. It is estimated that hundreds took part in the Boston Tea Party. For fear of punishment, many participants of the Boston Tea Party remained anonymous for many years after the event. To date, it is known that 116 people are documented to have participated. Not all the participants of the Boston Tea Party are known. Many carried the secret of their participation to the grave. They were made up of males from all walks of society. Many were from Boston or the surrounding area. But some participants are documented to have come as far away as Worcester in central Massachusetts and Maine. The vast majority was of English descent, but men of Irish, Scottish, French, Portuguese, and African ancestry were documented to have also participated. The participants were of all ages, but the majority of the documented participants were under the age of 40. There were 16 teenagers and only nine men were above the age of 40. Many of the Boston Tea Party participants fled Boston immediately after the destruction of the tea to avoid arrest. Thousands witnessed the event, and the implication and impact of this action were enormous, ultimately leading to the start of the Revolutionary War. And uh, talk about how they... Uh, and, they disguised themselves to hide their true identities. They attempted to pass themselves off as Mohawk Indians because if caught for their actions, they would have faced severe punishment. Reports from the time describe the participants as dressed as Mohawks or Narragansett Indians. The disguise was mostly symbolic in nature. They knew they would be recognized as non-Indians. The act of wearing Indian dress was to express to the world that the American colonists identified themselves as Americans and no longer considered themselves British subjects. They were not dressed as Indians in the classic sense with headdresses and full authentic regalia. Rather, they wore wool blankets, match coat style, painted their faces with foot and employee, other modes of dress commonly known at the time as Indian dress, which had been adopted by soldiers during the French and Indian War. An observer of the Boston Tea Party, John Andrews, wrote the following in 1773. They say the actors were Indians, whether they were or not to a transient observer, they appeared as such, being clothed in blankets with the heads muffled and copper-colored countenances, each being armed with a hatchet or axe and pair of pistols, and nor was their dialect different from what I conceived these geniuses to speak as their jargon was intelligible to all but themselves. Boston Tea Party participant George Hughes recorded the following. It was now evening, and I immediately dressed myself in the costume of an Indian equipped with a small hatchet, which I and my associates denominated the tomahawk, with which and a club after having painted my face and hands with coal dust in the shop of a blacksmith. I repaired to Griffin's Wharf, where the ship's slave 
that contained the seed. When I first appeared in the street after being thus disguised, I fell in with many who were dressed, equipped, and painted as I was, and who fell in with me and marched in order to the place of our de- destination. Um, let's see. Okay, then it goes on. Um, the damage that the tea, pa- the tea party caused was 9,659 sterling pounds worth of damage, and that was in 1773. 340 chests of British East India Company tea weighing over 92,000 pounds, roughly 40 pounds, on board the Beaver, Dartmouth, and Eleanor was smashed open with axes and dumped into Boston Harbor. The damage the Sons of Liberty caused by destroying 340 chests of tea in today's money was worth more than a million seven hundred thousand dollars. The British East Company, East India Company, reported um, 9,659 pounds worth of damage caused by the Boston Tea Party. Um, Let's see. The destruction of the tea was a very costly blow to the British. Besides the destruction of the tea, historical accounts record no damage was done to any of the three ships, the crew, or any other items on board the ship except for one broken padlock. Padlock was the personal property of one of the ship's captains and was promptly replaced the next day by the Patriot. Great care was taken by the Sons of Liberty to avoid the destruction of personal property, save for the cargo of tea. Nothing was stolen or looted from the ship, not even the tea. One participant tried to steal some tea, but was reprimanded and stopped. The Sons of Liberty were very careful about how the action was carried out and made sure nothing besides the tea was damaged. After the destruction of the tea, the participants left the decks of the ship clean, and anything that was moved was put back in its proper place. The crews of the ship attested to the fact there had been no damage to any of the ships except for the destruction of their cargoes of tea. Antifa could take a few notes. I was going to say, that's a really, that's a very, that's all like our first special ops. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. Well, that okay. was, that was the, uh, that was the, um, the, the first Boston Tea Party. There was a second one three months later. And uh, in March of 74, 60 men disguised themselves and boarded the fortune to throw 30 chests of tea overboard, being a much smaller protest that did not get the attention of the original. Okay, well, we got to get back to Dorothy yeah. and her. Well, she was actually there. Dorothy was actually there, a little 10-year-old girl, and this is what she said. Jack Smith was a short, stout, broad-soldered porter with a good-humored countenance and so accustomed to carrying heavy burdens that my weight seemed no impediment. So he no sooner gained the street than I was hoisted on his shoulder, a seat to which I was somewhat accustomed, and with a light and hasty step, the pair sought the wharf. The streets we passed seemed nearly deserted. The shops closed, and men passed with eager, hurried tread. The windows of Samuel Hall, however, blazed with light, and the hum of many voices that came from the crowd continually passing in and out of it. Jack said, there was a mass meeting there about the merchant cargoes of tea. The Yankees don't intend to let them land the tea because it is taxed and we won't pay the tax, he said. We won't, cried, we won't, cried Abigail. I wonder who we are. You are not one of the rebels, I hope. 
Oh, no, not that, said Jack, but I don't drink tea either. Mother says she will not pay a tax on tea because she is out here in the colony. She is a real English-born subject, and the larger and richer the colonies become, the better for King George. And she thinks her seven sons and six daughters a good way towards its increase. And father says he has enough to do to rear so many good subjects, so he won't pay the tax, and we won't buy the tea or drink it now. Well, I wonder how long my lady Maria will do without tea, said Abby. I'm sure I shall not give it up while it is to be had. I do not believe the governor will let it be sent away either. He dined and took his tea with Sir George and my lady yesterday, did he not, Dolly? That he did, and he did, and he took, and he held me on his knee, and he said I was to be called Miss Dorothea. And Anne promised I should, Miss Abby, I tartly replied. Little aristocracy, you shall be called, retorted the maid. But about the tea, Jack, won't it be landed tomorrow? The housekeeper said today that we were almost out and there is a little at the shop fit for our folk. Don't know, said Jack, placing me on the ground. We must come up into this warehouse. I know a good place to look out on the shipping where no one will see us. But what is it? I inquired impatiently. For spite of furs and wraps, I began to be very cold. Come and we followed our guides up a rough flight of stairs um, into a large chamber where we found a half dozen young people huddling together among the bales and boxes of merchandise, intently watching from two large windows. Anybody come on board yet, asked Jack. Yes, 20 or 30 Indians. I was warm in an instant. Indians? How the name set the blood to chill the extremities. Indians, I repeated. Where and what are they doing? Will they catch us? And I crowded to through it to the window with so much energy that Abby began to speak louder and was instantly greeted with a hush, 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 and I raised again to my feet on Jack's shoulder. There was not enough light, there was not light enough to distinguish features or costume very distinctly, but as we looked down on the docks of these three vessels lying close in by the building we occupied, dark forms moved quietly in and out of sight. This is so awesome, don't you think? <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> this is so awesome. <laughs> oh, am I doing, am I saying it good? Yes. Okay. Okay. Um, dark forms moved quietly in and out of sight, and very soon we were able to see that they were emptying boxes or chests, pouring the contents onto the dock. Silently at first, but soon stern voices rose at intervals, and then lights appeared. And the strange-looking men in long blankets with hideously painted faces seemed searching every nook of the three devoted famous tea ships. Dear, dear, exclaimed Abby, what is it? What can it be? The tea, said Jack. Smith, Solomy, the tea. Oh, Jack, you don't say so. You don't believe it. What shall we do away out here in America with no tea? This, is, this amazes me. How much do these people put the price on this tea? You know what I'm saying? Well, they're English. <laughs> God, it's like, I mean, tea is not, look, coffee is more addictive than tea. Tea is not addictive in any way, shape, or form. How will they think they're going to die without the tea? Well, it was the tea my mind. everything. You have to realize it was a social more. It was, it was a cure-all. It was a, you know, high tea. It's tea, having tea. I mean, their whole society was around tea. 
it, 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 you never went into a house but weren't offered keys. I understand that, but I mean, they have all the, this is America, things to drink. Well, it was psychological. You know, you gave someone a cup of tea to calm them down, to, to brace them up, to, you know. <laughs> oh, my God. I know. <laughs> and they talk about opioid, opioid addiction here now, right? Oh, we fought a war over tea, you know. <laughs> Jeez. Okay. Um, what shall we do way out here in America and no tea? Give the alarm, Jack. Dear Jack, go down and cry up the police. Let me go. I'll get some of that tea out of that dock. I'll run and tell Sir George Nunnington I will. But Jack stood still and looked out the window. The alarm was given somehow. Lights moved in every direction. Shouts proclaimed the approach of a crowd. The Indians had disappeared as if by magic, and we hurried into the street. Jack said we must go get into his father's place before the mob gained the wharf, or freeze or be jostled. Nobody could know where and may be crushed underfoot. No sooner had that done, for I scarcely remember anything but a rush, a shout from the approaching people and a door opened and shut, and we were in the cheerful little kitchen surrounded by a whole swarm of smiths. There was noise, running and stomping and bustle outside, but Mrs. Smith and her daughters presented a perfect picture of consented, quiet industry. We were welcomed, warmed, cherished, and attended with a very cordial but homely friendliness. Abby began to worry about getting home. The streets were impassable, and if my aunt missed us, she would be so terrified about Miss Dolly and so angry with her that she would dismiss her at once, and then what was to become of her in a strange land? See, they still think it's a strange land. That, that, that gets me right there. Um, mm. Even though they're, in a, they're outside of a city. See, now they're not, they are definitely, by this description, they're outside the city. Abby and, his, and her family but they're very, very close to the city. She ran on in this way, never hearing my reiterated calls for an explanation until Jack whispered something which tickled my fancy, though. He did not mean me to hear it. And you may be sure it pleased the maid and reconciled her to all the terrible disasters she pathetically laminated. He probably said, I will take care of you, right, Deb? Mm-hmm. Or he, or he proposed to her, but he gave her a way that she would be taken care of if anything happened to her employment. Jack Smith went into the street. We watched the moving mob map of heads from a window, gradually melt away, and soon by some curious, unremembered transition, I was in my bedroom, Abby trying to make me believe I had been dreaming, adding many injunctions to be silent if I ever wished to go with her again. I suppose I slept. I expect Smith in his strong arms brought me through the crowd. But if I had believed Abby's declaration that I had been dreaming, the conversation at the breakfast table would have taught me the contrary. For tea, tea was the whole subject. But how they settled it, I was too young to remember. You must read Brancroft's history to learn what happened in the course of the next year. I remember the Sabbath day. Even the Christians called the um, Sunday Sabbath day. Saturday, because I think some of them did celebrate Saturday and Sunday. I think that's how it used to be. Um, passed partly to the Old South Church and some trips into the country and a small, genteel young person who had made some effort to improve my reading. But display of troops, 
in the gay uniforms of that period, the graceful bearing of officers at my aunt's table, and the conversations at which I listened were things of so common occurrence that they are mixed up in my recollections with dolls and sweetmeats, lessons and dress, and through all there runs a memory of privation, rebellion, and war. Now, she is also, I cannot believe how much this little girl witnessed. You know what I'm saying? I know. She was right, <laughs> she was, she was right in the thick of it. Good Lord. Anyway, yeah. now, she's, gonna, she's going to be at the Battle of, I think, Bunker Hill. I want to go back and read the, the other description I have of her. But you need to tell us, what was, the diff, what was all this about? Breed Hill, Bunker Hill. What, everyone gets us confused. Okay. All right. Okay. Because you've been to both, you've been to all these places. Yep. Yes, I have. Oh, oh no. Alrighty. Now the uh, the Battle of Bunker Hill. Oh, you have to remember. Now this is in June. Um, let's see, when did that start? The speech started when did it, in April. So this is June. And the uh, the arrival of British reinforcements prompted the British Army to make plans to reclaim Dorchester and Charlestown in an attempt to break speed. <laughs> okay, before you, go, before you go on, I found it. She actually okay. witnessed the Battle of, of Bunker Hill. Okay, go so continue. Yeah, yeah Breed Hill and Bunker Hill, it was the same. It was the same battle. Um, and if you remember, Washington wasn't the commander in chief yet. He, the, the Continental Congress was starting to talk about that. John Adams, um, you know, once once uh, Lexington and Concord happened. The Congress started, you know, really, okay, what do we do? We've got to, you know, we have militia, we have, you know, farmers with pitchforks, you know, we need to get an army. So, anyways, the Congress is, is writing letters to each other, and then they're going to get together and we're going to, but George Washington hasn't been picked yet. So, this is pre-Washington coming to Boston. He came very soon after, but. In June, the arrival of British reinforcements prompted the British Army to make plans to reclaim Dorchester and Charlestown in an attempt to break the siege. And if you want to go over to the, Mila- the Massachusetts History Society, they have wonderful map collections. And you can really see, they even have one for the Battle of Bunker Hill um, that was written at the time. The map was made during, at that time. And they have a beautiful one of Boston. Um, as it was before all the landfill happened. So do go over there and check them out because it really, it's amazing when you think about it, especially if you've been to Boston, and it's nothing like it was. Okay. General Thomas Gage knew that to keep control of Boston, the British Army needed to have control of the hills of Dorchester and Charleston because they looked down on Boston. They were on the, they were, they were in the mainland part of, Massachusetts, you know, they were at the other end of the neck and kind of southwest of Boston, so, you know, and they were higher up. 
Uh, see, it, it, it says, which not Dorchester and Charleston not only overlooked the tiny peninsula of Boston and the harbor on both sides, but also nearby Rebel Posts in Roxbury and Cambridge. And they were very close, too. I mean, they were a couple of hours, you know, horseback ride. On June 15th, the committee, unless you were going really fast, and you just an hour. On June 15th, the Committee of Safety learned of the British Army Army's plans in Charlestown and issued an order for troops to immediately fortify Bunker Hill and Dorchester Heights, according to the Battle of Bunker Hill. Whereas it appears of importance to the safety of this colony, the possession of the hill called Bunker Hill in Charlestown be securely kept and defended, and also some one hill or hills on Dorchester Neck be likewise secured. Therefore, resolved unanimously that it be recommended to the Council of War that the above-mentioned Bunker's Hill be maintained by sufficient forces being posted there, and as the particular situation of Dorchester Neck is unknown to this committee, they advise that the Council of War take and pursue such steps respecting the same as to them shall appear to be for the security of this colony. Huh. Yeah, they're all lawyers. <laughs> Although the original order was to fortify Bunker Hill, the American troops quickly decided to fortify nearby Breeze Hill instead, most likely due to its close position to the harbor over the course of the night on June 16th. But now let's go to another um, uh, uh, article. And this is the, the, the Battle of Bunker Breeze Hill. They just put the two together because. Um, when dawn broke, the British were stunned to see Breeze Hill fortified overnight with a 160 by 30 foot earthen structure. The British General Gage dispatched 2,300 troops under the command of General, Major General Howe to take control of the hill. Uh, so it came to be that General Prescott did not actually fortify Bunker Hill, but Breeze Hill instead. How did this happen? One proposed idea is that Colonel William Prescott, since fortifying the hill in the middle of the night, chose the wrong hill. Another theory is that the map the colonel used was incorrect, since many maps during this period had commonly misidentified the hills. Another suggestion, and probably the most practical, is that Reef Hill is closer to where the British ships were positioned, allowing the colonists a better attacking position than at Bunker Hill. Regardless of the reason, the Battle of Bunker Hill actually took place on Reef Hill. <laughs> so there, that's, that's why it's called Bunker Hill, but it was fought on Breeze Hill. So it really should be the Battle of Breeze Hill, but everybody thought it was Bunker Hill. Yeah, yeah, you know, that should have been that should have been clarified a very long time ago and I'm really tired of these pundits that think they know history saying it completely wrong. And when we Brian, we've yelled at the, the radio about it. It's like, no, it's Breeze Hill. Breeze Hill. <laughs> yeah. But it's been Bunker Hill since the beginning. The Battle of so, you know. Hey, they're, t they're making us take down statues, get rid of names. Maybe this should be fixed, too. Yeah. Although that, what they're doing is not fixing. It's yeah. destroying. And you have to remember, I mean, Dr. Joseph Warren, Israel Putnam, and William Prescott stepped up. The, Israel Putnam basically became the, the one guy that they uh, they pointed and said, you should do this. He was older. He was not a young man. And they said, get an army together. <laughs> because the British, you know, we gotta, we've got to keep the, 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 you know, we have to get set up a place to, to 
keep an eye on the harbor, and then we have to get up to Dorchester Heights. Now, while this is going on, um, like I said, Congress is meeting, and, you know, but Israel Putnam, God love him. He didn't want to do this. He fought in the French and Indian War. He, he was retired. You know? He gave a lot of his money to them, those causes well. He did. He did. And he thought, you know, I'll do that. And all of a sudden, now he's, a, you know, he's like the, the, um, the acting commander-in-chief. And, and then Dr. Joseph Warren, God love him, he was a very, he was a genius, but he was a doctor. And unfortunately, we lost him at Bunker Hill, but, or Breezeville. Uh, and William Prescott, he got killed too. I mean, it, it was, it, it was. Oh, I just can't imagine um, being in Boston at this time. I mean, it, it really, it, it took the wind out of a lot of Bostonian sails when when Doctor Warren was killed. I mean, yeah. that just put him to the quick. He was so loved. Anyway, okay, go on. All right. So this is. Dorothea's, uh, she saw this too. I, I mean, gosh, she saw like everything. Um, so she saw the Battle of Breeds Hill. Months passed like the dream of childhood. While the colonies were ripening to rebellion, bloodshed, and civil war. Even that little girl knew it was civil war. They sent a host of troops from home. Boston was full of them, and they seemed to be there only to eat and drink and enjoy themselves. But one day there, there was more than usual commotion. Uncle said there had been an outbreak in the country. And then came a night when there was a battle, anxiety, and watching. Aunt and her maid walked from room to room, sometimes weeping. I crept after them, trying to understand the cause of their uneasiness, full of curiosity, and unable to sleep when everybody seemed wide awake and the streets full of people. It was scarcely daylight when the booming of the cannon on board the ships in the harbor shook every house in the city. My uncle had been much abroad lately and had only sought the pillow within the hour, but he came immediately to my aunt's room saying he would go and learn the cause of the firing and come again to inform us. He had not left the house when a servant in livery called to say that the nobles had collected in force on Breed's Hill. They got it right. We're getting up fortifications and that Governor Gage requested his presence. There must be a brush, he said, for General Howe had ordered out the troops to dislodge them. We were by this time thoroughly frightened, but Uncle Bay keep quiet and said there was no danger and left us. You may de- depend we thought the highest wisdom we had as soon as the light of the dancing day gave us reason to hope for a sight of the expected contest. There they were, the audacious rebels, hard at work, making what seemed to me a monstrous sense. What is it they're going to do, Aunt, and why are they making that big fence for? They mean to shoot our king's soldiers, I suppose, she said, and probably the firing is intended to drive them away. But, Aunt, the cannonballs will kill some of them, see? See? The soldiers in the banners? Oh, Aunt, will they be killed? Why can't they stay out of the way? A glittering host the crashing music, all the pomp and brilliance of war moved up toward the band of rebels, but they still labored at their entrenchment. They seemed to take no heed the bullets from the ship. The advancing column of British warriors were alike unnoticed. I should think they would begin to get out of the way, said my aunt. Every available window and roof was filled with anxious spectators watching the advancing regulars 
Every heart, I dare say, throbbed as mine did, and we held our breath, or rather it seemed to stop, and oppressed the laboring chest of its own accord so intensely we awaited the expected attack, but the troops drew nearer and the rebels toiled on. At length, one who stood conspicuously above the rest waved his bright weapon. The explosion came attended by the crash of music, the shrieks of the wounded, and the groans of the dying. My aunt fainted. Poor Abby looked on like one distracted. I screamed with all my might. The roar of artillery continued, but the smoke hid the havoc of war from our view. The housekeeper attended to my aunt and begged for somebody to go forth for Dr. Warren. But everybody was too much engaged with watching the smoking battlefield. Oh, how wild and terrific was that long day. Old as I am, the memory of that fearful contrast will sometimes come over my spirit as if it had been but yesterday. Well, she, could she get treated for post-traumatic stress, Deb? I mean, you know, I'm so tired of this. It's, it, it, I am tired of it because everything that happens in your life that's a, a traumatic influence on your life is going to change the way you look at things. It's just, you, it's, it's your psyche. It's normal. Yeah. Men say it was so, no much of a fight, but to me it seems terrible. Charleston was in flames. Women and children flying from their burning homes sought refuge in the city. Dismay and terror of failing and distraction impressed their picture on my memory, never to be, to, never to be effaced. Charleston's outside of Boston? Yeah. Okay. So that's where she was. Yes, yes. Okay, so okay. We, we, finally figured, we finally figured it out. Yes, um, I'm going to, I have, they finally, I have this wonderful map of Boston right here, and I'm. They finally told us where she was. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they finally did. Uh, let's see, Charleston. Yeah, they would, um, they, they would, oh gosh, where is it? Oh no, I'm at Bunker Hill. Hold on. <laughs> I have I have, and I just found my, my hometown map from seventeen ninety or seventeen sixty four. It's amazing. Um this is a wonderful site. How did I see this before? Okay. Oh no, that's on Okay. Yeah, Charleston was um get it here. Back up to the Boston, Boston, Boston Harbor. Here we go. That's what I want. Okay, so here we have Boston, and uh, Dorchester is, like I said, to the south. Bunker Hill is, you know, as you're looking at the map, um, there's Charleston is right off of Bunker Hill. I mean, Bunker Hill is on the Charleston little peninsula that sticks out um, into the Mystic River and the harbor, and you would take the little ferry to go into Boston. That's what they must have been talking about. There was a little ferry that takes you into to Boston. Okay. Charleston, yeah, that's, yeah. That, that sounds right. Yeah, Charleston is north of the the uh, almost island Boston. All right. Now we have the whole rest of the story. Yay. Hey. <laughs> okay. Right. By and by, Dre's carts and every description of vehicle that could be obtained 
were seen nearing the scene of conflict and the roar of artillery ceased. Uncle Cole came home and said the rebels had retreated. Dr. Warman was the first to fall and die that day. Then came the loads of wounded men, attended by long lines of soldiers, the gay banners torn and soiled, a sight to be remembered of for a lifetime. I have read many times and much of the glory of war, but this one battle taught me that however it be painted by a poet or a novelist, there is nothing but woe and sorrow and shame to be found in the reality. Want, utter destruction to many followed, and when the 12th of August came around and the British troops with the loyal citizens of Boston attempted to celebrate the birthday of their young prince, scant and coarse was the cheer their stories afforded. There were temperance people then from sheer necessity. The winter passed, I cannot tell how, but when spring came, everybody went on board the shipping in the harbor. At least so it seemed to me, for the officers and soldiers went and everybody that I knew cared for, except my father's family, seemed huddled together in the vessel so small that no room was left for comfort. What she's talking about is the, is the end of the occupation of Boston. It was called the evacuation. And she goes, she leaves as well. And, but I want, uh, Deb found a wonderful article about the evacuation. Yeah. Um, okay, here it is. The... Seeing the American fortification on the heights, meaning the Dorchester Heights in the morning, because during that year that they were having the siege, um, General Washington became the commander-in-chief. And the first place he went was there. Uh, They started doing things... um, They started to do things, the, Amer- the Continental Army, um, you know, they sent to, oh, what was his name? He was the uh, Benedict Arnold up to uh, the, the Ticon- Fort Ticonderoga. And um, in November 75, Washington sent a 25-year-old bookseller turned soldier named Henry Knox Heavy, heavy artillery that had been captured at Fort Ticonderoga to Boston. Um, amazingly, he did. Uh, he brought many cannons to the Boston area in January '76. I mean, it, you have to read about uh, Henry Knox's bringing down the artillery. Uh, it, 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 was, it was snowy and cold, and, and he did it. And it just is an amazing story. Well, anyway. Okay, once Washington had the artillery from Ticonderoga, he wasted no time in deploying it. Washington first placed some of the heavy cannons from Ticonderoga at Leachmere's Point and Cobble Hill in Cambridge and on Landsdam and Roxbury. I mean, this is all around uh, the the neck. This is on the, the northern and western side. Um, and then uh, he... He says, as a diversion against the planned move on Dorchester Heights, he ordered these batteries to fire on the town on the night of March 2nd, which fire the British returned without significant casualties on either side. These cannonades were repeated on the night of March 3rd while preparations for the taking of the heights continued. So anyways, um, so they, they were amazed because um, they, they had no idea 
I mean, they knew that they were up there on the heights, but they had no idea uh, that they were um, they were so entrenched up there. And uh, British General House the next day was quoted as saying, the rebels have done more in one night than my my whole army would have done in a month. Um, And the British wanted out, but were worried that a colonial attack would hurt them badly. They made a deal. I mean, once they saw, they were surrounded, basically, um, and especially from Dorchester Heights and Washington. If you read read, uh, about his implementing all the artillery at Dorchester Heights and what these men did in one night. It is amazing. Um, Anyways, it goes on. Seeing the American fortifications on the heights in the morning, Howe initially made plans for assaulting the position. This was prevented by a snowstorm late in the day. Unable to attack, Howe reconsidered his plan and elected to withdraw rather than have a repeat of Bunker Hill also known as Breezeville, on March 8th, Washington received word that the British intended to evacuate and would not burn the city if allowed to leave unmolested. Though he did not formally respond, Washington agreed to the terms, and British began embarking along with numerous Boston loyalists. On March 17th, uh, the British deposited for Halifax, Nova Scotia, and American entered the city. I have a, a visitor again. <laughs> I excuse this a little. He's taking my picture. Um, on March 17th, the British departed for Halifax. Nova Scotia American forces entered the city. Having been taken after an 11-month siege, Boston remained in American hands for the remainder of the war. So they left. They got on their ships. And they left, and they took loyalists with them up to Canada. Okay. Okay, there you are. (laughs) Well, because that other evacuation um, article was not the same that you just did, the one that you gave me. Oh, the oh the the um oh the other one, right? The New England uh, Society. Historical Society. Okay, yeah, wait a minute. I found another one that kind of explained it. But this was, this this is from the New England Historical Society. God, I feel like I'm, you know, back in home territory here. Um, yep. <laughs> okay. All righty. Okay, that's, all right. All right, now. So, getting back to, after the, the Battle of, Bunker Hill, also known as Breed's Hill, um, and then the fresh cannon coming down, there was no sane alternative for Howe but to retreat by sea. The British, however, needed to provide cover to the Loyalist families that had supported them through their 11-month siege in Boston. They needed an orderly escape. The colonists, meanwhile, wanted the British to leave without burning Boston. With an informal agreement in place that the British would not burn the town in exchange for the colonials not attacking the British ships as they departed, the standoff dragged on for nearly two weeks while Loyalists tried to load their ships for departure and the colonists waited. By March 16th, several minor skirmishes had occurred and Howe was convinced Washington was losing patience. And so he ordered the evacuation of Boston the following day, March 17th. 
Jolly Allen was ready to go. Now, Jolly Allen was a was a Boston merchant who arrived from England in 1755, and he was a loyalist through and through. And this is just his, you know, his account of the evacu- evacu- evacuation uh, day. Which and is really, a- this is really important because this is a very, very tense time. Yes. That they, yes. They're, they're negotiating this and people are passing each other and, you know, they just went through this whole horrific endeavor and everyone's pissed off at each other and you, how do you do this orderly, right? I mean, that's what I'm thinking. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the colonists had fortified Dorchester Heights, but they were outnumbered by the 10,000 British soldiers who held the city of Boston. I mean, yeah, the rebels had, you know, laid siege, but there was a whole bunch more British than than the, the, the rebel army. So this hey, is and why... That's not, that's not including the loyalists. So that doubled it. No, that was just the soldiers. That was just the British soldiers. I know. I know. That's not including the loyalists. Yeah. Yeah. Talk about being outnumbered. And, and the British were good at burning things. They had, you know, is, is, if you read on some of the places that they laid hold of, they did burn. Um, they burned Charleston, South Carolina, and a few other towns. And, in, and a lot of times they would burn crops and farms and fields so that the, reb, you know, the rebels weren't able to use them. And they, and they both both armies did this. Um, but anyways, getting back to uh, oh the evacuation. Okay, so so Jolly Allen, um, he, see, he had sold among other things some of the tea that so infuriated his new countrymen, and 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 he had been threatened with charring and feathering for it. You know, so here he is. Um, Okay, it's evacuation day, and everything is like, oh God, are they going to burn Boston? You know, are they going to let us go? Are they going to fire on the ship? What's going to happen? You know, are we are we going to be able to get out of here? Uh, the colonists, meanwhile, okay, no, I read that on March 16th, several minor skirmishes had occurred, and how was convinced Washington was losing patience, so he ordered the evacuation of Boston the following day, March 17th. And Jolly was ready to go. His plan was to be on board a ship and simply fall in line and follow the British wherever they went. On March 11th, Jolly Allen had secured the services of a private sloop, Sally, to transport him to England. The ship would be piloted by a 20-year veteran, Sea Captain Robert Campbell. He spent the next several days procuring introductions and letters of recommendation to assist him in his transition and in loading the contents of his two warehouses onto the ship, along with his personal belongings. His furniture alone, he valued at more than 1,000 pounds. Um, on March 14th, Jolly, his wife, and their seven children were on board. As more than 100 British ships began leaving on March 17th, however, it became, became clear just how inept Robert Campbell was. Over the next 24 hours, and Campbell managed to collide with two other fleeing British ships. Can you imagine there's in, in Boston Harbor, which isn't the biggest harbor, you know, I mean, it's eh, hundreds of British ships, you know, 100 British ships 
Never mind all the privately procured loot and and, I, and other little it, shit. It amazes me that could have maneuvered around all this. Yeah. I mean, it would be like, you know, bumper car. Um, yeah. Especially if you had gotten someone like Campbell who really didn't know how to deal with it. Uh, so, anyways, um, he managed to collide with two other fleeing British ships, nearly capsized sailing, and finally run it aground while the British ship sailed away for Nova Scotia. It was then that Alan learned Campbell had never been to sea and knew nothing about sailing. Before long, he was joined in his cabin by 20 other passengers who had been on the lower deck. Did they join the Allens in their stateroom, the others asked, so that they might all die together? I think so. Lord. I know. Alan was flabbergasted to learn that a plank had given away and the ship was filling with water. The captain seemed unable to offer any suggestions. The passengers and crew managed to anchor the ship near Provincetown, you know, which is right at the end of the 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 arm of uh, Cape Cod. When he got to shore in Provincetown, it became obvious that Charlie was part of the evacuation and he was arrested. Initially, some townsfolk offered to secure his belongings for a sizable fee, but a friendly stranger clued Alan in what they were already ransacking his things. By the time he returned to retrieve them, they were mostly gone. Alan was ordered to go before the general court to plead his case, and on his way from Provincetown, he passed through Boston and stopped at his old house only to find it had been taken over by his barber, who let him rent a room for two nights. What little remained of Alan's belongings disappeared for good when he placed them in the safekeeping of two Boston town fathers. Finally, in February of 77, Alan made good his escape and fled to London, where he pleaded his case for compensation, published in account of the sufferings and losses of Jolly Nat Allen, a native of London, whether he exaggerates is not unclear, is we only have his side of things recorded. But, I mean, this is the thing. He, as I keep saying, there's nothing new on, under the sun. Um, you, you go in. Okay, you know, okay. Deb, i got to get to her going to Canada because oh, we're running out of oh. time. Oh, my gosh, we are, aren't we? Yes. Yeah. Okay. All right. Okay, so we're back to Dorothea. Entering the drawing room, we were presented to General and Mrs. Murray and Miss Murray with quite a courtly air by uncle who seemed to have recovered all the dignity which the nobles and the protracted village voyage had deprived him. And well he might, for our visitors were real English people. And our next door neighbors who had in their earnest wish for the society of their countrymen laid off their national reserve and introduced themselves. General Murray appeared to me at that, at that first interview the very acme of high-born elegance. His lady, the perfection of womanly loveliness, and the daughter, Ami, was so delightful to meet a person not too much taller than myself. I am sure that I forgot in a moment the annoyance I had felt at entering the presence of strangers and, up to the little lady, shyly eyeing the elders and fancying I blushed all over. I was very small, in fact, decidedly undersized and lean, and angular to a degree of a plainies, very heartily regretted, for I just now began to realize the fact and would have kept out of sight till I grew taller and handsome, handsomer. 
as I was sure I should do. But this was a personal person almost as demersative as myself and not much prettier. As I discovered the next moment, which discovery measured me amazingly, notwithstanding the tasteful attire which adorned my visitor. Sir George noticed a look of inquiry in the eyes of his guests as he presented his ladies, though after the compliments and formalities of the introduction were over. He invited them to remain to dinner and console his family, declaring that his wife and niece were so lonely and homesick that they were almost blind with weeping. Now, she went to Canada without her family. She has no idea what happened to her family. Oh, dear. Now I was sure again that I was quite spoiled in the estimation of all, and the idea of my red nose and watery eyes added to a painful consciousness of inferiority, destroyed at once the delightful assurance which had so lately and so suddenly promised happiness in the society of a child like myself, a pleasure I had never known. I could have wasted a few more tears of bashfulness and vexation and probably should have done so, had not Miss Murray come to the rescue by asking one where I came from, how old I was, and one question following another, till fairly at my wit's end I forgot that it was unbecoming in one of my age to cry and laughed very heartily at my new friend's questions and tried to rival what I thought was smartness by smart replies. Childlike, we were fast friends in a half an hour, and so were our elders, I. And so we remained till fate separated us, placing us so far asunder that we were as dead to each other. A ride was proposed, and as the general's carriage was large and comfortable, we enjoyed the drive through the streets, past the cathedral, the Jesuits' barracks, and the Ursuline convent, out into the tall, old forest, as people have been long shut up in the narrow sloop and only know how. Cordelia Murray and myself were turned out to run among the trees and gather shrubs and wild flowers as the opportunity and, and as this was my first experience of life in the woods, you very well suppose we improved the opportunity thoroughly. Cordelia had often visited the place, it being within reach of the girls who were day pupils at the convent. Papa likes it, she said, as we sat together on a moss-covered stone. And he brings me here of a morning before the bell rings, and the girls, the little ones, mind you, come out at noon, yonder, and is our dining room pointing to a pretty spot surrounded by evergreen, whose thick branches formed an impenetrable roof. The lower ones adorned with dried spring flowers, which the children hung in clusters among them, and here and there paper flowers were added by way of ornament. Moss was piled up for seats and lounges in a manner too artistic for little hands. You are a very cunning artist, said I, for once jumping at a correct word, which I was very proud of doing. Mr. Montemolian, the rector, comes and helps us. You will know him soon. For he likes us children better, I think, than he does, does our fathers and mothers. Oh, he is such a good playfellow, and he then teaches us English children to read our own language. He will want to know how much you have learned. Okay, so it just goes on and on and on and on and on about her meeting with them because we are running out of time. Um, and I want us to, we need a few things that we have to say. So, she lands in Canada, Nanada, with a lot of the loyalists that did. If it wasn't for Canada and the Canadians welcoming them, they would have been devastated because the British wasn't helping them at all. And 
we do this show for we're we- they're saying they're weaponizing news and language. Let's weaponize knowledge. How about that? I think we're going to weaponize knowledge from now on. And to do that, please go to uncooperative blogger, no, uncooperativeradio.com, uncooperativeradio.com. When you get to the site, there's going to be three shows that you can download and listen to for free. One is the Uncooperative Radio Show that I do with my husband. It's a political show. One is the Women of the Revolution, which Deb and I do, which is both political and historical. And the other one is the Patriots Pub, Patriots Pub, only historical. It is the founder's word day by day, day in the Continental Congress of 1787. Please view it from episode one or you'll get lost. So we are officially on the show Weaponizing Log, uh, Knowledge. So go to uncooperativeradio.com, uncooperativeradio.com. And with that, Deb takes us out as always. Okay, well, y'all, I'm glad that you, you stopped by and gave us some time to, to uh, share our, our wonderment. Is, so the, the types of um, women, because, you know, it's, it's so often that you, you – uh, you see, you think of the the colonial and the the revolutionary women. You know, you watch Daniel Boone as a kid, or you know Davy Crockett and all that, and um, you don't really know about the women in Hollywood's version of the women. You know, you really can't go by. So it's wonderful to to get their words. I love it when we come across a, a journal, and I I hope you enjoyed it as well. Um, being that I'm the mother of a female soldier staff sergeant, I I would appreciate um, a thought, prayer for uh, our kids in uniform who are in dangerous territories, and we have many who are in dangerous territories because it seems like the world has gone mad and everybody wants to shoot something at everybody else. Well, anyway, our kids are over there. Uh, in in uh, dangerous dangerous places, so give a thought and a prayer uh, for their safe you know, coming home and for the families that are waiting for them to do so, all safe and in one piece. Uh, also, our veterans are still waiting to be treated as they should be treated. Trump is making inroads, but it's. It's a it's a disastrous setup to begin with, and um, the VA system really just needs to be burnt to the ground and started over again. But that's just my personal opinion. Anyways, if you ha- if you live near a VA hospital, by all means, go visit the uh, the vets there, and they love to tell you stories. Um, and they love that you come to visit them and they're not forgotten. Uh, and when you're there, ask them how things are. And if they don't say, that's yeah, been doing really good, find out what's wrong, and then please go out and make a noise about it. Call, it, it go right up to the administration, the administrator's office, um, and, and if you don't get in to see the administrator, fine have a good talking to to her receptionist because 
that receptionist will let her know. And then you go home and you call your representative. You call your your local VFW. You call your local American Legion. You call whatever other vet organizations in your area, Rolling Thunder. Um, they are all going to the VA hospitals. I was a Rolling Thunder liaison to uh, a nearby VA hospital, you know, several years ago. We all show up there to make sure that our guys and gals are taken care of correctly, and if they're not, we make a lot of points. And we would appreciate if you could watch our, our vet sick, too. And with that, I hope you all have a good, safe week. Keep your powder dry. And really, if you liked what you heard on the show, please investigate further. I mean, I could go on for weeks on just one part of one subject, uh, and Susan has to cut me off, as you notice. But do go out and um, do some research on these what happened, what made, what led up to it, why, the hows, the wheres, and the whos. Um, and gosh, if you come across any women that you, you don't think we might have spoken on, um, please get, get uh, in contact with Susan through the um, unproductive, uncooperative, say it again, Susan, uncooperative, What's your uh, site? Uncooperative producer? Yes, yes. Yes, get in touch with Susan if you come across any any of the women that you might know that we haven't touched on. We'd love to hear about it. So it's uncooperativeproducer at gmail.com. There you go. There you go. Anyway, y'all have a wonderful week. God bless you. God bless this country and keep our kids in uniform. Camouflage, blue, and firefighter red, safe as they go towards danger. And we'll see you next week. We have a couple more really, really interesting females. So do come back next time or next week, same time. Good night, all. Been great.